Hello, everyone. You thought off script was over, but it is not. Hi, this is Deep Tran, senior editor of American Theater Magazine. Every so often, American Theater does live events in New York City in conjunction with our print issue. For our May June 2018 edition, we hosted a live event at the Ralstick Playwrights Theater around the theme of immigrations and refugees in the American theater, entitled "Stage Migrations." The conversation was in front of a live audience, and it was also streamed on Facebook, so you can check out the video on that platform. Or if you just want to listen to it on your commute, here it is. Happy listening. You are listening to an American Theater podcast. American Theater is a publication of Theater Communications Group. www.americantheater.org. Hello. Okay, let's do this. Thank you all for coming. So, we are. This conversation is simultaneously being live streamed on Facebook, but you, you won't, you won't be here. So, it's. So that's why we have these lovely microphones, and um, also we're sharing these, by the way. So. Hello, I'm Deep Tran. I am the senior editor of American Theater Magazine, and as you may know,、uh, every month American Theater releases a magazine, ish, a print magazine issue around a certain theme. It's kind of like a, this American Life, but for theater.、Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, for our May June issue, we did we chose a theme of im- immigrations and refugees, and and im- immigrant artists who are working in the theater, and also how American theater artists are working with immigrants and refugees. Populations at home and abroad, <clears throat> and we have assembled a wonderful, accomplished panel of artists tonight to talk about their experience as as immigrants and also as first generation Americans. And in the case of Carmen Rivera, not as an immigrant, but as as part of a population who's usually seen as outsiders in America. She is Puerto Rican, in in、um, background. So first, a short intro for each of my panelists. The first、uh, next next to me is Ed Slavanis Iskandar, who calls himself an alien of extraordinary ability. <laughs> I have the piece of paper from the U.S. government. <laughs> he's he's directed, commissioned, and developed over 150 productions. Around the world, most recently, the immersive caught at Think Tank Gallery at in、um, Los Angeles, and also and last year the, he directed the repertory productions of Sojourners and Her Portmanteau at New York Theatre Workshop. Next to him, oh, we, we can clap if you want. Yeah. <laughs> Next to him is Carmen Rivera, who holds an MA in playwriting in Latin American theater from New York University. Her play La Gringa w- premiered in 1996 and has recently celebrated its 22nd year anniversary in repertory at, rep- at Repertorial Español. It is now the longest-running Spanish-language play in off-Broadway history.、Yes. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> 
Oh, and I am so sorry. I did not ask you beforehand how, how to properly pronounce your name for me. Uh, Ngozi Anyamu. Ngozi Anyamu? Yeah. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Is an over, overall Renaissance woman. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Her playwriting credits include Good Grief at Center Theater Group uh, and The Homecoming Queen at Atlantic Theater Company. And next to her is Maria Manuela Goyanes. The, the, <laughs> yes! I've talked to her before, so <laughs> that, that makes it less awkward. And she is a newly selected artistic director of Woolly Mammoth Theater Company in Washington, D.C. And she is currently the director of producing and artistic planning at the Public Theater, where she spearheads a, day, the play, a full slate of plays and musicals at the public's five theater venue. And last but, Latin, but not least is artistic director Blanca Ziska, who runs the Wilma Theater, and, she's, and she co-founded it in 1981. In the fall of... Yes. <laughs> <laughs> In the fall of 2011, Blanca received the Zelda Fitzchandler Award from the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation, which, or, which recognizes an outstanding director or choreographer transforming the regional theater landscape. So. The only woman so far. Huh? Mm-hmm. The only woman so far. The only woman so far. To get that award? Yes. Wow. Yes. Yes. And just logistically, the microphones are for Facebook, not for, not for this audience, so please okay. talk into them okay. if Thank possible. You. Thank you. All right. So I, I wanted to start out the evening on a personal note. Because I, I feel like usually theater, theater artists, you know, put the art up, and we don't really know anything about about the people who are who are doing this work. And so I wanted to ask each of the panelists to talk about their own identity and how and how they became comfortable with it. Because I know, speaking for myself, I'm Vietnamese American. I came here when I was when I was two years old, and so I'm that weird in between state of not quite being from my motherland, but not quite being from here either. And and it wasn't until recently that I really reconciled those different identities within myself. And so I wanted to talk to all of you about how did you how, how did you find your own hyphenate identity, and what does that mean? Uh, <laughs> I know, it's not difficult, I, right? Uh, it's, it's interesting that um, when you were introducing us, that you said. Um, Carmen's in a different category because Puerto Rico is in a different place. Yeah. And um, without arguing the politics of it, it's, it's part of the United States. It's not part of the United States. Is it a colony? Is it not? So when I was growing up, um, I was born in New York, and my parents were born in Puerto Rico. And they came here in the, in the, with the big marine tiger migration that came. And in my house, there was never a discussion that I wasn't American or that I wasn't Puerto Rican. It was like we were both. And it wasn't this weird dichotomy that we were both, but we were like neither fish nor fowl. And um, so I kind of grew up living in a place that was neither fish nor fowl. Like I, I live in a limbo and I'm very comfortable with it. 
Like, I just, I can't choose. I'm from the Bronx. I live in Brooklyn, and my family's from Puerto Rico. So that's sort of how, like, the hyphenate, like, existed. And I have to say that it wasn't until I went into the theater that I, that I realized, like, how segmented our population is. Not so much the theater, but just looking at the landscape and how, like, oh, you're from here, and we're from there, and you're this, and you're not an American yet. And there's always this idea of, like, when do you become American? When are you not American? Mm-hmm. There's this sort of, like, if you, like, English is my first language. And when I tell people I write in English, they're all shocked. They're like, but don't you speak Spanish? Like, no, I didn't grow up speaking Spanish. I wish I could be bilingual enough to write in Spanish. I speak Spanish now. So in La Gringa, which is what they call me when I go to Puerto Rico, um, and they're like, this is the, 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 you're a gringa. And I remember my cousin one day said, like, well, even though you're a gringa, you're still Puerto Rican. <laughs> and I think that, <laughs> that encompasses, at least in the way I see it in my mind, how what, what it means to be a Puerto Rican born in the United States. And in, there's a line in the play where, she's, where the character says, um, I'm American in, in, Puerto, in Puerto Rico and I'm Puerto Rican in the United States. That means I'm nobody from everywhere. No, or no, I'm from everywhere. So I think that's how, like the hyphenate is there, but it's sort of like, I'm, I'm going like this for, I'm on Facebook, I guess they can see it, right? Mm-hmm, like they like, can. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, I'm, I'm going to jump in just because yeah. Uh, yeah, great. Um, I'm going to jump in just because, just to add to the Latin X experience or whatever. So my um, dad is from Spain and my mom's from the Dominican Republic. I think of myself as a first generation Latin X American, um, but that is like new for me. I always thought of myself as a first generation American. My parents came, you know, they were fleeing to dictatorships. My dad from Spain, from Franco, and my mother from Trujillo in the DR, and they met at a church dance in Jackson Heights, Queens, and wow. I grew up in Queens. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so that was like my life, you know, and I think that part of the issue, at least for me, has been like I um, I super present as white, like nobody could tell that I'm Latin at all. My sister is a different story. Right. So I grew up in a household that has like, you know, just like all different uh, color, shapes, sizes, all of this kind of stuff. And I think that for at least for, for what my understanding is of the Latinx experience is that that's a lot of people's experience, actually, because there are a lot of different, there are a lot of different countries in Latin America and South America, and, and there's not a real way to really talk about it here in this country. So, um, so I, I see it as a real privilege that, that I have, that I can decide whether or not I tell somebody about my background and my family, but I unlike a lot of my friends who look way more uh, Latin than I do, I totally speak Spanish. I'm fluent in it. My parents speak to me in Spanish. Like, I answer in English sometimes, but like, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like, the culture, that is my culture, you know? And so... um, so for me, it's been um, it's a journey and it will continue to be a journey, particularly because we are now, I think, in an exciting time of trying to actually articulate um, our real authentic experience um, uh, uh, and how it is that we want to actually carry our ancestors with us or not. Um, and I and I would say that for white people, too. Mm-hmm. I'll go. Um, uh, I am the child of, hello, no, 
Hello? No, yeah, there we go. Of course. Oh, look at that. All for me. Um, uh, um, I am the uh, child of uh, two Nigerian Igbo people. Um, and I was born in Jersey and raised mostly in Bucks County. Um, and I would say that I probably identified as everything at one point in time. My parents were kind of like, you're not a black, you're a Nigerian. You're an Igbo person. You, your, your family is from this village. You know exactly where your culture is from. But I was raised and born in America. So it's like, good luck. <laughs> with saying that to other black people or white people because no one really goes, are you Nigerian? No one really asked that. So then it was like, no, no, I'm black. Um, and then growing up and then becoming a writer and an artist, you know, um, you know, the first thing I did when I could make my own art was start work with other first-generation Nigerian American women, um, which is why I very much, and we very much talked about the balance of identifying as black, identifying as Nigerian, identifying um, as women, um, there's just so many cultures. I also grew up in a very white town, so there's just there's a lot of stuff that I picked out, picked up from that, you know. So I just sort of see myself as a Nigerian American black woman, like all all things, you know. Um, yeah, that's my answer. <laughs> so I feel like I am a. A ghost from 20th century, because if I talk about my background, it's the Soviet bloc and behind the curtain, the behind behind the Iron Curtain and all that stuff. And I'm probably the only refugee here and spent time in refugee camps. But it was in Germany, not here. So um, I left illegally, end up in Germany for about you know, me and my, my husband at the time, or my boyfriend at the time, and uh, um, kind of went through that experience of being being year and a half waiting for papers to get further to get to the United States. So uh, um, then came over here. I still feel probably more Czech than American. Mm -hmm. um, talk about the hyphenation. Um, and I think in some ways creating theater was kind of a way of uh, keeping the continuity from, from Czechoslovakia because I grew up, I, for me, the theater in Czechoslovakia at the time because there was such a huge censorship that you could not do theater publicly almost. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so we did it in... Uh, underground as they called it, right? Mm -hmm. So you would do one performance in one, 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 one place one day and then you would not do anything for three months and then you would do another performance mm -hmm. somewhere else. So it, the police would be always a step behind you, right? But the place that I used to go for theater was Poland and that was kind of a paradise for us because Poland was much freer country than Czechoslovakia that was in, invaded at the time by the Soviets. And so I grew up on Grotowski and Tadeusz Kantor. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, hello. Uh, I so I, I'm a little complicated. Um, my grandparents were all Chinese, so I am by blood uh, descended from Chinese stock. Uh, my parents and I, and my generation were both born in Indonesia um, because my grandparents left China for various reasons that I don't think I'll go into here. Um, and uh, so citizenship-wise, I am and have always been Indonesian. Um, uh, I 
grew up in England because I started going to school there at seven, um, uh, partially because Indonesia and Britain were trying to reinforce diplomatic relationships by having Indonesian students go through the English boarding school system, which is what happened to me. Um, uh, in my late teens, while still in England, uh, uh, our president Suharto was deposed in Indonesia, which caused um, a huge uh, uh, sort of event within Indonesia that was not widely reported in the um, Western media, um, uh, which was really, uh, the Chinese in Indonesia have a complicated history. Uh, if I were to direct the Merchant of Venice in Indonesia, um, Shylock would be Chinese, is sort of what, 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 what the Chinese population is seen as. Um, and uh, Exactly. Um, slash people, uh, people who came in with access to the best jobs, or the jobs that made money. Um, and so halfway through my teens, the economic bust that happened in Indonesia created a, a huge backlash against Chinese people, and there was a, an ethnic cleansing event in Indonesia that really never quite made its way to, to, mm. to the Western media. So for a while um, I basically was asked to stop identifying as Chinese for that reason both in Indonesia and I started claiming that I was British um, even though that was not an issue of citizenship um, that was just simply where I was in my life at that point. Um, I came to America at 18 to start going to school here. I thought it would just be very quick four years of undergrad but I am still here 18 years later um, and uh, um, in a variety of ways I've started thinking of myself as Asian American for the first time in the past few years um, <laughs> because <laughs> Welcome um, you know, again, it's it's confusing to, to say that given my accent and you know <laughs> the rest of it. Um, partially, I think because now this is the country in which I have been longer than any other. Um, growing up, uh, my entire human network um, is now in America. I, I would literally consider that I'd have to start over even in England if I were to go there. Um, and uh, and that's how I think of myself. And almost the entirety of my artistic network and relationships and career has been located in the United States, even though I've done a lot of work outside of it as well. I love, Ed, when you said it's complicated. Be because like so, so many of these stories about, about immigrants and first-generation people are complicated, and, they don't, and they're not usually portrayed in American theater or American media, for that matter, which is why we're in the current state that we're in. <laughs> but, and so I, I'm just wondering, like, what was your entry point into this art form where the tradition is very European, wealthy artists telling stories about waspy families on couches. <laughs> That's not European. Pardon, <laughs> 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 Blanca. Blanca, did you want to expound first? Yeah. Sorry. I think Western that's a European? very American naturalistic oh. aesthetic. I think European aesthetic is very different than couches. I suppose in response to that question, uh, uh, you know, I think maybe we may all share this in, in, uh, you know, um, in common, even though I'm making a large assumption, but I think the theatre has always been the natural um, home for many people who feel outside of things. So I think for me, it's always quite natural. And I grew up not in a naturalistic environment, partially because in England, uh, you sort of cut your teeth on Shakespeare um, and all the classics, which it's interesting to think about it in the context of what makes an immigrant narrative, but because in an odd 
odd way as a director as well as as somebody who's been in a lot of Shakespeare plays um, the first thing I learned about that world is that you do appropriate those stories and make them your own and so you are able to create some form of you with the existing literature and material of another culture Um, so in an odd sense I think my own journey into the theatre sort of reflected very closely the cultures that were informing um, who I was myself Um, I didn't really think that I was going to be directing um, when I was young I was enamored of you know being on stage but I sort of knew that being an actor and Asian was probably not going to make for a very fertile career sadly Um, and so I found the next the next most difficult thing (laughs) and decided to apply myself to that instead Um, I would I would perhaps say that um, the moment that I recognized that I, I could contribute something to the theatre was not really necessarily a racial moment. It was a very human moment. I remember distinctly at the age of 17 or 18, before I knew anything about anything, uh, watching a production in London, um, which was going really extraordinarily well until the last five minutes. Um, and then <laughs> and then the actor who was playing the lead role just sort of broke the rules of everything that had come before. And I was so appalled. I remember sitting there thinking, oh, I could have fixed that. It, it could have been brilliant. But, but instead it's dreadful. Um, it was very, very simple. So I think my compulsion and connection to the industry was just a, a, a visceral one. It was a primal one. I wanted so much to uh, retain the feeling of, wow, we just got to somewhere beautiful and glorious together. Um, and, and suddenly I realized, oh, maybe I should start thinking about this storytelling thing, however that's going to manifest. Mm. Um, since we, I didn't... Um, sorry, it's okay. Thank you. I, I, um, I just I grew up in New York City in the 70s and it's, New York was broke and there was free theater everywhere mm-hmm. there was in the park it was in, in, um, in, in every, I mean in community centers so I just remember my mother finding all the free things that she could find <laughs> and we would go see lots of theater and shows and music shows and in my local, I grew up in Inwood Heights in, in New York and in, in, in Dykeman, and there's a library there, and there were free puppet shows every week. So she took us to see the pre- like. So I, it was in a way that being New York, a broke New York, allowed art to to flourish. So I didn't grow up thinking that theater was so far away from me. And then as I'm older, I realize it really was far away from me. <laughs> but like as a child, it was it was just really exciting. To, it was like a natural thing. It was like, let's mm-hmm. go play in the park. Oh, they're doing this show in, you know, in the park. And then my mom went to college when I was 10, and she studied English literature. And then she got tickets to go see plays all the time. And my father wouldn't go. So then mm-hmm. I was like her date. So <laughs> I, like, I grew up seeing so much theater. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I loved the show Lost in Space. I don't know if you remember that, right? And and I and Don, I, I made a character for myself. Don and Judy got married, and they had a little girl, and it was me. And I wrote, I had a book with all the different activities that, like, um, uh, uh, events that would happen, and then designed my costumes because they had great color coordination. And the, and I love purple, so all my, my my costumes were purple. So like, I was doing that already, seeing theater. So in a way, like when I. And my mother hates that I became a playwright. Like now she now she's fine with it. But so I I tell her you took me to the theater like for the first ten years of my like and and remember my little book of Lost in Space and she's like that's a hobby that's not for real you know but like I grew up with a lot of exposure to art um, mm-hmm. so I. It, 
you know, I know New York is not broke now, but there was something really beautiful about the broke New York. So mm. well, more affordable, definitely. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> I want to jump in and, and talk about just because we're talking about like immigration and stuff, like survivor mentality, you know. And mm. I feel like that's how I grew up, and it was just basically like, you know, you have to. Um, my dad had a saying: "It's better to be at the tail of a lion than the head of a mouse." He says it in oh, Spanish. Wow. It sounds, you know, but essentially, <laughs> sounds much better than that. Um, but. Uh, but essentially, the idea here was, you know, he, he felt like, you know, he was coming here and um, having a family and really wanting to set roots and seeing my sister and I actually being able to have, like, you know, make a living and be able to actually have, like, sustainable careers. Um, so little did they know that I was going to go into the theater. I mean, really, I had very similar to Ed, a youthful, arrogant moment <laughs> where um, uh, uh, we're basically like I um, in high school, I went to Bronx. Science. I they they brought us to um, MTC to see a show, and I totally was in the front row. And it was like Alice and Jenny. It was a really good show and stuff. And I was like, oh, I could totally put this together so much better than. What I'm doing. <laughs> and I and then I went back to look, and I was like, oh my god, Maria Joe Mantello directed that production. I bet that he. I bet that he would have. He did a better job than you ever would be able to do. But at the time, I was like, what you know? I, I um, and so. There was something about uh, there was something about um, sort of uh, uh, I had enough um, freedom, luckily, to be able to be um, uh, uh, exposed to those things. There are people that aren't, and you know I feel lucky that I was able to go to a good school. Like I mean, I studied my ass off for that test. I ba- I like I like barely got in because again, right tail of a lion, not head of a you know what I mean. And I was like, I'm gonna be, I'm going to try to be around these people who I knew that the people around me, I was gonna learn as much from the people around me as my teachers. And that is basically has has been like what it is that I've been trying to do. What how I took what my dad said to me, and then also thinking about right, like I've got to set, I've got to make it so that they're not worried about me, and I've got to make it that I don't have to ask them for money because we don't come from money. So I so basically I was like, okay, so how do I do this and pursue the theater? And like I found this broke ass internship at Trinity Repertory Company that gave you housing and sixty dollars a week, and I was like, great. I'm not going to ask my mom for money and I'm going to basically like eat all the hors d'oeuvres at the singles nights <laughs> and that's how I'm going to live and luckily luckily I think that drive I don't know I really I that's why I identify as first generation I feel like there's a, I have a I have a drive that I connect to that uh, that experience of needing to actually sort of figure out you know success because I um, it wasn't like it wasn't clear that I was going to be able to do this. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So I feel really lucky to be able to actually be, well, anyway, mm-hmm. that's it. <laughs> that's right. like, uh, as a first generation also, um, with, uh, I don't know if any of you guys know Nigerians. Nigerians are real intense about the education process. Um, so like, uh, I think this is all parents, right? No parents actually want their kids to actually be artists. Um, and um, my parents to, to this day will swear to God that I was going to be a doctor until I was derailed. And I was like, that was never going to happen. Um, and I um, sort of grew up, you know, in the suburbs. It's kind of really cliche. Like, I saw, like, my first musical, and I was like, I want to be in musicals. That I, There was, like, this one girl, Lauren Finiello, and she was, like, loud and, like, in the ensemble. And I was like, that is my calling. Like, that was like... That was like a, 
I was like, I'm going to be that girl. And that was like, you know, and it was all downhill from there. No, but um, then I got into college, and um, like Blanca was saying, like, I was actually not very satisfied with what I was being taught in an undergrad. I got that sort of like general BA liberal arts degree that I just started burying myself in in the library, and I was then exposed to ennui, Camus, Grotowski, um, and just really... And just like literally started like reading Nietzsche. I think like existentialism is like a thing at 19, but, um, uh, and I just was really sort of into that sort of theater and making theater from that. You know, I did like an, I think I did, oh, I directed an adaptation of like, Albert Camus Caligula like mm. at like 20 I don't know um, I don't know if it was any good but of course I did but you know um, and, and, and really identified with that so I never really I think just growing up black in an America where you see and Nigerian where you see almost no representation of you you kind of like I made it a um, I, I made it a uh, what's word a task to like I identified with everything. I was like, oh, I can I can pick I can see myself there. I saw myself there. I saw myself there until I was able to actually I think write and then be like, oh no, but this is myself. This is what it is to be a Nigerian. This is what it is to be an American. This is what it is to be a black woman. This is what it is to be an African. But I saw myself whether they want me to or not in everything. That was like well done at least. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, in Czechoslovakia, there, there used to be this tradition of puppet theater. And so, you know, like you have a puppet theater at home as a five-year-old and you play, you are making up your own stories, you know, and that's apparently how it started. I was totally, um, I, I just went all over to my relatives and I wanted to like tell my stories to everybody and they didn't want any longer. They were like so tired of me. So then I went and knocked on the doors of the kindergartens at the, as a nine-year-old saying like, I can play a story for you for the kids. So that's how it started. And then <laughs> I was relentless. And um, and then when I was a teenager and uh, after the invasion by the Soviets, um, my father was uh, involved with the political regime before, so I could not study. There was no way. So my I was working as a cleaning woman. It was my job in the morning. And in the afternoon, I was working with a company that we started. And uh, that was very much influenced by Grotowski and by Arto. Arto is European. <laughs> and... Uh, and uh, that was kind of like a, for me, theater was a way of living, of getting away from all the bullshit that was happening in the politics and the society and kind of create our own tribe, basically, where we could talk. You know, hopefully there was not an informant among us because that's how it was at the time. And when you could be actually talking and even if you would not be able to talk directly, people who were coming to theater, they were coming for some kind of truth to theater. And even if it would be in between the words, in silences, because the words were censored, that's what, there was a collusion between artists and audience members. And everybody was risking something because you actually could be, you know, caught for going to the theater that was not allowed. So um, there was this kind of sense of risk, which was, uh, which uh, made it special and different, obviously, you know. So there was something that um, was very kind of different for me to come to the United States, and suddenly you are kind of talk about theater as industry, right? Yeah. It's like, what, what is that? <laughs> industry. Money. <laughs> Entertainment. Like mon- commercialism, yeah. capitalism. Yeah. 
Oh, Blanca, actually, on, on that note, if you have not been to the Wilma, it is wonderful. They just completed a renovation. In, the Wilma's in Philadelphia. And they have a really good coffee bar in the lobby, <laughs> by the way. And I've noticed from the work I've seen at the Wilma is like it's very, it's kind of like the Willie Mammoth's work in D.C., where it's like very politically engaged, where the, they always acknowledge that the personal and the political it, are interconnected. And so when you founded the Wilma in 1981, Blanca, was that an intent? Because you founded it to make the art that you couldn't make back home like do, has that in, like th- that past has that influence was that the sorry I'm trying to figure out how, how to word this properly but like like how, and like how, how's the how's your your back uh, Blanca your background mm-hmm. and everyone's background like influence like the art that you make mm-hmm Well, I think that the political always invades the personal. And if you believe that that's not true, you are delusional, right? I think that politics and the larger world that we are living in are influencing in a big way our personal choices from day to day. So the micro and the magnitude are working, you know. And if we don't think about it, if we, if we, if we think that's not true, I think that, that that is delusional because... So for me, theater is always about that, the meeting of the public and, and, and the personal, the big picture and the personal detail of how you go through life yeah, and how you are being influenced by those bigger, bigger forces. Amen. I'll, I'll just say, I mean, I, I completely agree with that and I also feel like we're I mean most of us work in the nonprofit theater for a reason right and so it isn't actually I mean it's it definitely has that industry part but like there are some values actually that I just assume I don't know maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong and I should not walk through the world this way but like if you're a theater person I will usually like you like I I just assume there's something that I assume that like if you if you identify as a theater person for the most part you feel like you are actually creating um, you're creating something that you want to move people. You want to actually have some kind of experience with people in a dark room together. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I and I and I particularly in the nonprofit theater assume that. Um, I don't assume that in the commercial theater at all. Um, and I think that the thing. I think that uh, yeah. The I, to me, the whole nonprofit regional theater movement. Like didn't Zelda say that? Like to act is to be political, like, period. Like, that was, like, the founding the founding um, moment um, in that. So I think that you're right, ultimately, is that, like, anybody who, I mean, you can choose to tune out what's happening. I mean, I happen to be going down to D.C., so I'm going to, like, see it in the backyard. Do you know? <laughs> um, but I, I think that it's, um, but that's a choice, and that actually says something about where it is that you are and what it is that you want your journey to be and your path to be, right? But, like, the fact of the matter is it's happening. And the thing that I think that is so exciting for this moment is that people are articulating things that haven't been articulated, that people um, that people have been holding on to, and we're learning the language together, which means that we really suck at it at the moment. And so, like how we talk about th- like how we talk about uh, systems of oppression, racism, sexism, those kinds of things, we're actually uncovering a kind of new language together, and that is scary as all 
get out because we all are going to have blind spots to how ultimately we have um, been able to use those systems for our benefit. Um, so it's hard. It's going to be hard for all of us together. But I believe that because at least the people that, like we're in the nonprofit theater, like our values, they got to line a little bit and we're all sort of in it together in some way. And so I'm hoping, I'm hoping, I'm hoping, I'm hoping, but maybe I'm wrong. Again, like I'm walking through the world and I don't, I have a different skin experience than uh, my uh, brothers and sisters who are black or brown. I have a very, very different experience than that. Yeah, I, 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 as someone who's like, uh, has new, has been in theater for a long time, but has new access to certain theaters now, uh, I have to question if everyone's in it for the same reasons, if audience members are in it for the same reasons, why I, I, I am now, uh, the more and more I'm walking into theaters and having people see the plays that I write and what have you, I am more and more <laughs> becoming on the Dominique Morso side <laughs> of things. And I say that as far, I, mean? I think that means that the audience members have to ask why they're in the audience too. Um, and the audience members yes, have to really right. think about why it is that they've decided to walk into this right. play and see these people, right. anyone, any, any musical, any, you know, and I don't know that not-for-profit, I think that my thought, my idealistic thought was not-for-profit was, in theory, more artistic or more idealistic than the commercial theater. Um, and I can't speak so much on the regional circuit, but I don't know that I agree with that as far as New York goes. I don't know that New York is upholding that philosophy very well. It feels like the same sort of commercial infrastructure, and everyone's trying to get to the commercial infrastructure. Um, so I don't, I, 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 I want that to be the truth, but when I'm looking at seasons and seasons announcements, I'm seeing maybe the one or two plays that feel sort of like humanly and artistic driven, and then the three things that everyone's trying to get to Broadway. So I don't necessarily, and I don't know that, and I've seen plenty of beautiful, artistic, interesting things on Broadway as well. Um, so I don't, I just don't know that. Um, I think that's, that's my big hope, but I don't know that I agree with that anymore as someone who has to sit in the audience and watch people see my work and, and take naps and um, just cause, you know, whatever. And whether they're not interested, whether they're like, well, this doesn't, well, I don't care about this, you know? Um, and, and it's like, well, you, you read the trailer, you read the, like, come, like, come in and receive. So I'm, I'm really, I'm, I'm really of two, I'm really, not of two, I'm of one mind about it. I think that, um, everyone has to really start thinking about why it is that they're walking in. Are they really trying to receive what it is that they're on stage? And if they are really trying, you'll get something, I think, out of anything you see. But I don't know that everyone is walking in, not just being like, entertain me and give me my 40 to $400 worth. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know that everybody's coming in for the truth. Um, I'm a bit of a pessimist these days. Um, I, I'm still writing, so I got hope. But um, uh, but that's that's I'm, my my faith is a little shaken. Is it influencing what you're writing? Um, yes and no. I'm trying to. I think it's trying to. I'm trying to be more relentlessly authentic in what I make. I'm trying not to um, give in to the well. If I just make it. If I, Five people on a couch, it'll get produced, right? Yeah. Like I'm not, I don't even know how to do that, so I don't have to worry about that. But um, um, I'm, I, I'm just trying to be 
I'm always, as I'm writing, trying to be as truthful as I want to be and really try and write when I'm really, really interested in making and have faith that I will get the people in the room to do those things. I will get the theater that wants to do it that way and, and what have you. So it is making me more relentlessly truthful and it makes me relentlessly want to seek collaborators who are interested in the same thing. I don't know that it necessarily changes mm-hmm. what I'm writing, um, but that's today. So. Um, I do think about um, the, the act of writing and um, I think the act of writing is to say you're present or one is present um, I, I think being Puerto Rican does affect me in some capacity especially Puerto Rican American where I'm sort of like in this no man's land and um, and in graduate school, I studied dictatorships in theater, fascinated by violence and what theaters created during the um, in, in an era of violence. And I studied the, um, the the Videla dictatorship in Argentina. And one of the things that happens in any upheaval, writers are disappeared, books are burned. So I think the wit- the written word is so important, saying that to say that you're here. And I'm. I grew up in a very wonderfully loving house where being Puerto Rican was just part of life. It wasn't anything like special or I didn't, I know there's some Puerto Ricans that I, even some of my cousins who like didn't want to tell people they were Puerto Rican. I'm very lucky I didn't have that. But I understood even from a very young age, the politics of you can't do this. My grandmother went to a protest in Puerto Rico and she got so scared because a lot of the people disappeared. We had a disappeared that nobody talks about in Puerto Rico, an era of disappeared. Mm-hmm. So I feel very, I don't always, I mean, La Gringa is the, I, just one of two plays I've written about the Puerto Rican experience. That's it. None of my other plays are deal with that, but I'm very conscious of the fact that writing is an act of saying you're present. I'm here, I existed, and when I die, this will continue unless it's burned or something. But um, it's very, con- like, I'm very aware of that. And and um, even before Hurricane Maria brought out art, the toxin of the colonial situation, um, it's, 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 um, and, and you're in situations, too, as a writer, where people don't want to hear what you have to say. So I feel like you have to write it even more. Mm-hmm. Like, it's like, okay, and, I'm, and I have, for better or for worse, if you tell me not to do it, I'm going to do it. Like, I, I have that. that and, and some people say that's a colonized, like, having, like, I have cousins that are half Puerto Rican, half Irish. So they, so one of my cousins is a poet. like, I'm half Puerto Rican, half Irish. I'm a product of two colonized people. So I'm angry, right? So there's like that's that's Vincent Toro's line is not my line, but um, there's something about when you're told you're not supposed to exist, you're not good enough, you're not you are lower than this. We are here to save your life, and then you say no, you're not. I'm fine just the way I am, and I f- I feel that in my writing. Even when I write comedies or I don't write about being Puerto Rican, I'm like no, I'm here. You can't tell me I'm not here. So I think mm. about that. Um, not every second, but it's there. You know? it's like, not every second, but since the hurricane, we, it's, it's, we've yeah. been all on edge because it's like we've been experiencing this for a hundred something years, and you know. But anyway, that's just one net, one little window into that. But in my life, but even as a woman, I'm here. 
you can't tell me I can't do because I'm a woman because I can't do what? Mm-hmm. So I, I, I wrote a play about the stock market. I worked in stock in, in Wall Street before in college, and they're like, you can't write about that. You're Puerto Rican. You can't write it. Well, watch me. Now I'm going to write about it, and I did. I finished the play, and I'm sending it out, and it got into the Kilroy's for honorable mention, and they told me that I couldn't do it. That's like the like the worst thing to tell me. Well, the best thing because I'm gonna thing. do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm gonna do it. My husband, no, like you can't tell me. No, like I kiss, kiss, can't tell me I can't do it. So anyway, yeah, yeah. Um, I think for me, all art is inherently political. Mm-hmm. Um, I inherited that point of view from um, my graduate school teacher. I was very fortunate to have been trained by a man called Mladen Kisilov. May he rest in peace. Um, but um, I asked him this question um, as, as a graduate student. I was like, okay, so I'm not doing a very political play, um, so how do I create a point of view in this that's reflective of today? Um, and he said, as long as there's even the smallest obstacle to somebody's right to love somebody else, it's political. Um, and I, I, I believe that. Um, and, and, and I believe it of the medium. I also believe strongly that any act of making theatre is inherently political. It is an act of organization, of a common message that you're sharing with a congregation. I think it's our job to try and figure out how to diversify our congregation um, uh, because, of course, the message sometimes is really about the choir being preached to and vice versa. Um, I would also say, just in terms of politics, I think our job in art isn't always to explain what's actually happening in terms of a cerebral or a quantifiable thing. I think it's simply just to make us feel something in common with somebody not of our experience. And I think the moment you do have that feeling, you're going to act on it. Um, I think we're all very good at acting on something that we feel about. I don't think we're very good at acting on something we understand. Um, And that's just basic to being human, I suppose. Um, And to answer your question deep about what about our various sociocultural upbringings um, reflects in, in the way we make art. I mean, I think you can't avoid that. You know, the people we are, the people we grow up, inherently shapes your vision of the world. And it really wasn't until I was halfway through doing the thing I was doing until I realized, my God, this is the sum total of everywhere I've been. Um, I, I mean, for, you know, I... the. the I first came up in New York doing these incredibly long plays. Um, I uh, loved doing them. I did these six, seven-hour productions, um, and partially because I thought all this work goes into bringing everyone into one space, so why are we being so quick and kicking them out? You know, it's like... So let's just... Absolutely. Like, they're here, you know? Lock the door. Let's have a conversation. Let's hang out. Um, and that was, you know, and everything I started experimenting with was how do I make that a more tolerable experience? <laughs> and there wasn't anything I wouldn't do to serve that. Um, I remember one of my very first times when I met Mar- Mariah when I first came to New York was she came to a production of mine that I did in, in a loft um, that was a seven-hour Greek tragedy marathon. Um, and I just thought, okay, if I'm keeping people around for seven hours, we should feed them. So we figured out how to do that. All the cast would get together and we'd make meal for the entire audience and we'd break bread together at the first intermission. And then we can't afford dessert, so we'll tell them to bring their own. And- <laughs> 
that'll be a, that'll be the that'll be the second intermission. And if it's going to be seven hours, then I think everyone should bring a bottle because that's what I would need to get through seven hours. Um, and uh, and again, sort of slightly fearful that seven hours was going to be too much. I would make the curtain speech every night, and I would simply say, "If you feel sleepy, take a nap." <laughs> Because then you'd probably wake up for the really good bit. It'll be loud. I promise we'll wake you up somehow, you know. And it was Greek tragedy. Somebody was always crying, so it was all right. Um, But um, I suddenly realized, and of course, a lot of that was shaped by the resources I had at my disposal at the time. I simply came into that particular loft. It was being paid for in a particular way. The way that I was making my art was particular to every single thing I could do as an emerging artist in New York City. However, I realized the basic philosophy behind it, this notion of extended connection was a fundamental reason as to why I came into theater to begin with, which is for two reasons. We're at a moment where the globalization of the world has taken away all these borders from connection, but we've also, we've also become technologized, which means that our connection to other human beings is mediated by things, by machines, by mobiles, by ways in which we are no longer really directly connecting. Um, and so in my, in my view, we're a generation that is sort of back in Plato's cave in a modern version. You're sort of staring at versions of shadows of human relationships rather than actually engaging in human relationships. Um, And so to me, the biggest service I can pay into the theatre is actually create a context in which you have to essentialize the human relationship with other people that you're speaking to. And that that act, that simple act of incentivizing connecting to the person next to you because we've so trained ourselves to not do that because of long plane flights and other things Um, you you really don't want to open a door you can't close later Um, but if you were able to actually give that to a human being I fundamentally believe they leave that space recharged with the possibility of what it actually feels like to be open to connection and that, I think, is probably the most important thing the theatre can do. It is the most political thing, I think, it can achieve. Um, because the moment you relate to somebody else and their point of view as another human one, how could you not empathise? Um, and ultimately, why I realised it came exactly from the way that I grew up in my culture, I just thought to myself, oh my God, all these Indonesian plays I used to... Indonesia does not have a fourth wall theatre tradition. It's lots of sketch comedy, lots of songs in between, and you know, shadow puppets, and they sort of just love having it go on as long as humanly possible. (laughs) It's like when you sort of go up to something, it's 12 hours long. Partially because it's not about let's get you from point A to point B in the plot. It's because we've brought you all together. You're connecting as a community. Eat, hang out, have a conversation. We'll catch you up. In three hours' time, I promise there'll be a plot pricey. Um Or somebody will do a dance, you know, sort of like summarizing what the last three hours have been. Um, and, uh, and so I sort of suddenly realized, oh, yeah, so I've lived that. I just didn't connect the dots when I was doing it for myself here in this Western context. And the other thing I sort of realized from my own childhood that I've incorporated without any shame um, is in Indonesia, when you hang out with folks... It's actually very, very abnormal to split away from the group. If you have something to do, the whole group sort of follows suit. So 
the end of the night is typically where the biggest congregation happens because everyone has absorbed into the main group and you go off and do everyone's things so you know which is very not New York um, but um, there was something very beautiful about that because always at the end of a night is where you would have this beautiful communal space where whatever you did or didn't experience in the hours leading up to it you could process and I realized that what I was doing in my own career um, was simply replicating that very special thing that's always been in me culturally um, and a thing that I think I took for granted growing up and a thing that I want to restore um, to our ability to have civic dialogue with one another. I just want to add to this, uh, the community that you are talking about is also something that we don't have here that often within the theater itself, because we are so separated into writers, directors, actors, everybody living in different kind of place, everybody's doing their work on their own, alone, performing, you know, being responsible for yourself only instead of company, you know, coming together as a group of people who are doing theater because as a group you actually want to comment on something or you want to bring something out, you want to point at something, right? You want to have a dialogue with somebody. But it's a group. There is a collective will on opening that dialogue. And you are actually also in practice on developing aesthetic that also creates that group. You are inviting writers to write for that group. I mean, we have lost it in American theater. We don't have it that often. Companies, when they started with Zelda Fitchlander, and you know, I go back again to, to our grandparents there, right? And it started as companies, Guthrie, ART, ACT, right? And uh, I think I blame Reagan for all this because I think that, you know, when I was coming over here, I was hoping and dreaming about the living theater, open theater, performance garage, Richard Schechner, all these are greats, right, in the avant-garde theater. But the 1980s, it was over. The one remaining company was Squad, the immigrants from Hungary, the Squad Theater, which was fantastic. But that company didn't last too long either. It was like by the end of the ni- 1980s, it was over. And um, I feel like that at that point, we had this invasion of corporate thinking that came into theater. And that corporate thinking destroyed the culture. Because I remember like by the ni- 1990s, we had all these consultants that were coming and telling us, how to do the subscription, how to do the fundraising. Mm. It was all about everything, about the business of the theater, but not the art of the theater. And so I think that what's happening now, again, that we are going back to the art of theater, mm. that there is that this, this walls of this corporate theater in America that was created is breaking down, and we are coming back to that. Yeah. So... Last Friday, I was at Aaron Schlossberg's apartment. You know, that's a racist lawyer (laughs) who harassed some people in public for speaking Spanish. Mm -hmm. And there's a protest in front of his apartment. They organized it in 24 hours. And the the organizers had rented a mariachi band (laughs) that played. (laughs) And there was dancing and free tacos and people told their personal stories. And... And I was thinking, like, <laughs> this is theater. Yes, like, this yes. is a show being put yes. on in front of this person's apartment. And so it got me thinking about, about this panel of, like, what is the role of art right now for you? And has this entire climate that we're in of the government basically insulting every single country that's, that has black or brown people in it, 
like what kind of urgency has it given you in your art making? Well, you said, but you, what you said, it was theater that you did. You were saying, you were telling Aaron, but other people were present. Yeah. So I feel like it, it, if, if we, a lot of times you hear in, like with writing, like people say like, oh, if you want to send a message, call Western Union. And there's like this kind of thing, like we shouldn't have content in theater or this and that. You know, playwrights get told that a lot in development type. I mean, not by everybody, but I've heard it more than once. And it's sort of like, no, every just what some of the other panelists have said that all art has a message. All art is political, and I remember an interview with James Baldwin who said every line that's ever been written by a writer has a message, and it's not a message to to um, uh, uh, just tell somebody you know this is how you should live. It's a message. It's it's about well, no, we're here together in this journey, and we're, we're and, and we can't say we're not together because we are together. As you can deny that we, we're taking this communal journey on planet Earth, but we're here. And I think um, even before Trump, but after Trump, Trump just released a lot of things that were there. I mean, I teach playwriting at the New School, and my uh, the students were doing a project on rhinoceros, and they hated the play. And they're like, I don't want to do rhinoceros. And then after Trump was elected, we're like... Like, you see, this is what Eugene did. Like, this is what Eugene Ionesco did. This is how, and your versions of rhinoceros are all going to come out in the next couple of years. So I think um, every action has a reaction. And in a way, Aaron brought out, like, the reaction to that was amazing. It was food and mariachi band. But I think as a whole, Black Lives Matter is part of that. And all the social movements that are happening, it's so important. Um, how young people are now saying, I'm not, bi- I, they, they want they, no more binary paradigms. That's happening. We're watching in real time mm-hmm. social constructs, con- um, constructs breaking down and new ones being birthed. And I think theater, and just saying that theater, going back to like making art yeah. without a corporate um, or, or just these really rigid um, rules, or, or it, it's exciting to see that art is is going to continue being made because humanity is still living. And I think um, all these different social... And I think we're just going to keep seeing seeing, uh, seeing it. And it is the urgency. It's like, no, no, we really have to say we're present. We have to say it. And I think people are. I think that it isn't that people have to be activated. I think we're activated. And um, it's actually exciting to watch in real time. It's not exciting to see Trump, but it's... or or. He's a metaphor for so much of the toxin that was right underneath in our culture. Who knew? Like, no, I don't. I think everybody's just still shocked that it was all there. Um, Not everybody. I wasn't shocked. Like, people are. People are like. People are like. Oh, but but like, no. It's been. It's always been there. Like, it's that's true, and it's really interesting just to see there's a different type of activation now because you can't pretend that it's not there. Yeah. Yeah. That's what. That's what. That, that's what. You know, if anybody says it's not there now, like yeah, exactly. It's, it's like, like well, then I don't know. Then go live on the moon or something. I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's like yeah. I think from for um, the urgency that I at least have is that like I, this whole thing is maybe like 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 Trump's gonna be depressed. Not like mm-hmm. I'm a pretty joyful person, but it's made me more urgent about seeking that joy and more urgent about making things and celebrating. I also feel like 
with all the beautiful political theater that comes out, there is a want and a need and an expectation for black and brown playwrights to only speak on our pain and our trauma because white people have just discovered it. <laughs> so, yeah. I'm just going to say it. So, but there is a political action in just being. Mm-hmm. There's a political ac- action in, 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 in watching black and brown bodies do the mariachi instead. In Oakland, what did they do? They were doing like the electric slide oh. outside. The barbecue. Some racist establishment, right? Yeah, like, yeah. So like, there is, there is a, a need That's, for these yes. bodies to also like seek joy and celebrate because um, it's like life. It's, it is life and doubt, death for a lot of people, um, and that's the that's the constant realization that I'm kind of coming under. It is life and death, and so like the the least I can do is like some theater and like attempt to make my theater for the sake of bringing like catharsis and joy and 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 seeking that out and bringing that to other people and seeking the theater that that really is trying to do that as well as the theater that's trying to make me very conscious about what's happening mm. um it's uh it's interesting because the that question for me is like it stymies me because ultimately i like you just feel a little bit like what the fuck yeah. <laughs> Um, and also, um, and also, have thought to myself, you know, uh, shouldn't I be doing something else? Like, I really thought after the public, like I should just go and like, you know, run an NGO or something like that, or go and do so. I mean, I, you know, I care about Planned Parenthood. I care about like other, you know, there are different things. Um, and I've always had that in the back of my mind, like maybe I should go do something like that. And um, and then suddenly it started, it 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 dawned on me, particularly in terms of being able to run something, what that actually means, and being able to try and actually live some values, mm-hmm. and be able to actually sort of be um, be able to um, model that and show that out. out outwardly you know to people and I thought that I would really regret not doing that in the theater before I left the theater which is why I decided to apply to the Woolly Mammoth job and and lo and behold now I've got to you know do it yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah Um, yeah that's right. So, so yeah, so I, I built in, I guess the thing that I would say is, like, I built in that urgency for me, right? Um, I, um, I had it um, in, in terms of humanity, but I built into that, in that urgency in tr- sort of deciding that I was going to take some kind of leadership role um, uh, uh, in, in our field. I want to go back to that joy that you were talking about, you know, because at the end, I'm in it because I love doing it. You know, it's as simple as that. <laughs> Gosh, the question of urgency is a, a really troubling one because, of course, everything that's happening in this country right now is about a transformation in the rhetoric of us and them and creating a sort of lexicon that really marginalizes the other in every sort of way, which is, of course, the side of the pendulum swing many of us don't want anything to do with, um, but it is, it is there and present. So I think in a field-wide, on a field-wide level, what storytelling 
I'll include theater, film, TV, media, any kind of visual representation of humans in action um, and human relationships in action. What they all share as a responsibility is to find a way in which our fundamental instinct is decolonized from translating the straight white male body into the representation of all experience. Because when we watch, we have all of us in our various ways have grown up in such a way that we got used to that somehow. The hero saving the country who happens to be white, who happens to be male, who happens to be straight, um, sort of becomes a stand-in for our role play of what we could be in that situation. So we've just gotten used to it. And, you know, I'm not, I sort of consider myself a B minus in terms of wokeness. Uh, but, but I'm, you know, but I'm working on it. Um, I'm working on it. And the process of all of that, wherever you are in your own relationship with yourself, um, what we have to fundamentally do is find a way in which when we confront the body of, a, of an other, that we are still looking at that other in terms of what the similarity is to us, not what makes that different from us. And it is very simple. Uh, you know, uh, the, these two productions that I was lucky enough to work on at New York Theatre Workshop last year, and Fonny Sodofia's, um, her portmanteau and sojourners, there wasn't a white body on stage. You had no choice. You were seeing an all-black company in both plays. And so you had to find what was in you to connect to the person who's on stage. And it was astonishingly easy because the stories were fantastic. Um, but we're not used to doing that. And I think there must be some... In how we train our next generation through schools, education, um, high school especially, even how it is to look at a Shakespeare play, which I spend a lot of time thinking about, um, you know, the moment you've seen a person of color play Juliet and that's your first encounter with the theater, then it's done. The job is done. It's that easy. Suddenly you realize, oh, I'm also a young girl who has this experience of being in love and I can connect to this, this body speaking this text. Um, but of course, you know, that, that really requires us to be diligent, all of us here, all of you there, and everybody who has any leverage um, in this industry in terms of what we allow and permit to be on stage or on a film or on TV in a visible way, we must find a way in which the tolerance of the boundary of representation can continue to be stretched so that the other is fundamentally a representation of all and not just a representation of something else. Okay, so now we have some time for audience questions uh, from this audience or from Facebook. Uh, while we do that, our lovely team will be setting up food and wine back here so you can drink something after this. <laughs> so feel free to come up and uh, get the microphone. Any questions? Any questions? Oh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> I'm not sure how long this cord's going to go, so you can come up... Uh, Come on up. Hello. Uh, first of all, thank you so much for your time and coming to speak with us about something that is very inter interesting and fascinating and necessary to our continued discussions on theater and what it means. Uh, I just have a quick question. I'm just curious because um, I think what makes theater so beautiful is that anyone can make something that is expressive of themselves. 
um, and it seems you all come from very different backgrounds, and we all come from very different backgrounds when it comes to making theater. And I'm just curious as to how your, I don't know the right verbiage for this, but spiritual or religious upbringing has been a part of the theater that you create or that you're interested in creating. Um, if you just want to talk about that, I'd be really interested to hear about it. Um, so I grew up, um, my uh, parents were Catholic, but my mom believed in reincarnation and believed that Jesus had a wife and like all this when I was a kid. <laughs> like she, and she believed that he was Buddhist. Like she believed all of that. So I kind of, what helped, I guess, was I, I, I didn't have a kind of a typical Puerto Rican grow, upbringing um, in that. It, it was like Catholic, but sort of not. Like, it's okay. Like, we don't have to go every week. You know, like, it's, it's like he's there. Jesus is there. And, you know. So that, like, in a way, like, it, it, I appreciate that because it, it, in terms of, like, how I look at, like, art or theater. Like, I'm interested in things that fuse, that add other elements. I, like, I don't know. I, I kind of, like, feel like that opened me up to different um, uh, ways of of being or thinking or of other people's religions or so in a way like from a and I also believe there's a spirituality in theater of not that it should be like religious but at the end part of the catharsis is a spiritual integration or a spiritual uplifting that that happens for every different for everybody no matter what your religion is so I thank her for that in a way like but I didn't realize it was happening mm. like my my mom's second husband is Jewish and some people in the family were like well you know like I don't know they don't like Jesus and my mother's like Jesus was Jewish like get over yourself and just move and like like she always looked at things from another perspective and that helped me like oh well what's the other perspective of, of something and um, they always like say like you kind of marry your father, but my husband is exact. He's a Gemini. He's right there, Gandhi. Though he's a Gemini, and, and he's a writer too. <laughs> and he looks at things in other ways. So I like jokingly say I married my mother because it's like <laughs> because they look for alternate. Like, well, what's what's what else is happening? And I'm, I, I thank her for that. It wasn't like, oh, if we're not like this, we're going to go to hell. She's like, there's not even hell. Like, come on. You know, it's like, you know, so anyway. I don't know if other... <laughs> I think theater is inherently church. Yes. And the religion is humanism. He said, um, I grew up... Uh, Catholic mother, rosary, all the beautiful things. Enjoyed Sunday school because I enjoyed the stories told um, through the Bible. Um, uh, So I I think there's some amazing... Like, my next play is about Lucifer. Uh, (laughs) So we're just probably going to create some bad juju. Um, uh, Because it's it's Lucifer as the hero. Um, And so... um, Bring light. Yeah, well, you know. Well, you know what I'm saying. Um, So I grew up with a a lot of uh, church, but kind of fell out of it. And theater very much became the sort of spiritual thing for me. Yeah. My, um, so um, my mom grew up in a uh, convent school in the Dominican Republic. So um, it was, it, you know, I grew up, it was like a sin to watch a rated R movie. You know, it was like that kind of thing. Um, and so uh, uh, 
and I went to Catholic school and all that kind of stuff. So I have all that guilt <laughs> and all that difficulty. Um, but basically, I just want to echo. I think it's interesting that you asked that question. Um, I think it's great. Uh, it again just goes back to this thing about like um there's something about um uh humanity and moving people in some way and all of those stories really like the the things that that actually bring all the religions together have to do with the teachings on love right and compassion um and those i mean you can find it in every single one Mm -hmm. um and i think that that teaches us something so well mike said Religion is open of opium of humankind, right? So that's what, where I grew up. The church was not really allowed to go to church, and uh, s- but for me, the spirituality is now in the rehearsal room. That uh, I work with actors with the company, and uh, there is trust, there is listening to each other, there is ten- tenderness, and there is love, and there is inspiration. Yeah. Uh, I think mental health is a very important part of your artistry. So I'm really curious, especially with the diverse panel that we have here today, if you guys could talk a little bit about what your artistic homes are, where you go to recharge um, for people here or watching on Facebook. I want somebody to tell me because I've got, okay, so like I'm ending a job after 15 years of being at a place and I'm going to start a new job in September and I have the month of August to do that. (laughs) (laughs) So like I'm going to be taking notes. Thanks. Uh, Wow. Um, Artistic homes. uh, Rattlestick here is one of my artistic homes. I'm a literary, uh, on the literary team. Uh, New York is my artistic home. I've been here for almost 14, 15 years. I've been an intern at every, almost half the major theaters in here, so most of them will let me through the side door and just hang out. Um, So, yeah, for me, it's like, at the night, I go and see a play. That's what I do. I go and and see a play. If I hear about a reading, I go and see a reading. I'm like the most random theater artist here, I think, because I usually like, Cozy, what are you doing here? Aren't you busy? And it's like, yeah, but I'm procrastinating. I don't want to see a reading. Um... I don't make me feel better, you know? And so I go see, you know, I go see poetry readings. I go see regular readings. I go see dance shows. You know, New York is a beautiful playground to go and see how other people let it out. Mm. Um, When I get insurance, I'm going to go to therapy. Um, You know, go to therapy if you have the insurance. We're like, go do it. Like, I'm having my personal assistant, like, teach me how to, like, get the certain kind of insurance so I can go ahead and get therapy. So, like, that's super real. Like, that's the thing. But New York is really, um, for a long time, open mics and just go and just watch other people do their art and do something that they love and like that will fuel you and energize you in ways that you like you won't even think about so like take it out of yourself and go see someone else's art I think for me it's um, that I started a company again and uh, we are meeting every Monday for five hours and uh, so on a day off <laughs> we, we get together and um, and work on de- developing new method- methodologies and uh, looking at the projects like two years ahead of time but also I think what is really important to see other directors at work and we don't do that mm-hmm. too much at all so what I'm trying to do is like when I go to Europe to find people that I really respect and want to see how they work. So that's how I started a relationship with Theros Terzapolos in Greece and uh, Chaba Horvath in Hungary and Dmitry um, um, what's his name now? <laughs> 
he was on the page on the on the on the main page of of your cover just the other month. Uh, Dmitry Kremov from from Russia, and um, I just love how they approach their work. It's very different from mine, but this kind of learning experience and keep on learning is very important to me. I, Nobody's going to go sit on the beach. Like, come on, I want to actually write that. I was that. actually, I, I was, when you say home too, you mean like what writers do to recharge, not just physicals. Like, um, I, I have a, I'm a very anxious person. Like, I have a lot of, like, I'm just really nervous about a lot of, and I want everything to be right. And all, so I need to, dis- like, I need to, like, walk. Like, I need to, like, like I'll, I'll whether it's you know I know see shows or not, but I need water. Like I've always lived by water, and um, so I'm in downtown Brooklyn. So like to walk to see the water or the beaches or like I I I have to disconnect. I have to force myself to disconnect because I don't know how to disconnect. And so that's a real, that's like a, like my mom gave us two weeks in Puerto Rico and she's like, if you work, I'm making you pay for them. Mm. Like, and I'm like, so I'm like, hmm, okay. So Candido and I were like, well, maybe we could finish the movie we were working on. I'm like, no, we can't. Like we have a really, I have a really hard time just disconnecting. And, um, so I have to force myself, I have to actually force myself to take walks and I do. And I listen to music. I love music and I love water. And, and, um, and and I think when you have like people that you can get together with artistically, that also fuels you. But I'm sometimes you're not in close proximity to these people. They're on tour or they're the, you know or something. So um, if I don't have a chance to to deco- like to just listen to like Shaka Khan for an hour, like before I go to sleep, like I I, I won't be able to work the next day. Like, so it's sort of like between music and taking walks, but I need that. Like, if when I don't do it, it gets really like the wheels start spinning and they don't stop. Mm. Um, so I don't know how healthy or not, but like, you know, um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I guess from a simple creative standpoint, uh, for me, the, the kitchen is where I tend to recharge. I sort of I cook all the time um, and you know anytime I'm feeling nervous or uh, not knowing what to do typically by the time I've finished making a meal I'll have an answer to whatever problem I have with the play at hand Um, and it was funny I remember a story from grad school actually my teacher saw me I was cooking a meal for him and he watched me do the entire thing and he psychoanalyzed my entire director psychology (laughs) in relation to how it is I cut all the vegetables beforehand and had them in neat plates and all the rest of all that stuff just in terms of how I handle process and it was one of the most accurate dissections of style I've ever received it was actually very very problematic for me at the time (laughs) because it just felt like he'd suddenly seen some deep deep thing in my soul um, but um, but I also wanted to address your question from a sort of sociological standpoint, especially since we're discussing the experience of immigrants, um, you know, uh, working in the theatre. I mean, it, it's an interesting challenge right now because as freelancers, um, you know, you don't always have an artistic home you can be at. Um, you have long-term relationships with many companies, hopefully, um, who champion you, who choose you. It's different for playwrights, as actors, as directors. Um, you know, and I, and I will share a little bit about where I am personally right now, especially in the context of this current administration. I mean, I'm here on 
uh, a visa, a work visa. Um, I've been identified by the government um, as an alien of extraordinary ability. I'm not a threat to Americans getting jobs um, because I have self-qualified over the course of, a, of approaching this visa that I'm not actually taking jobs away from other American directors because what I do is unique. Um, and that, that's what I'm adding to the conversation. Um, I cannot really go down the citizenship route because uh, my home country of Indonesia, which is where my parents and my whole family still live, um, does not look kindly on dual citizenship. So if I were to declare myself an American, um, legally and otherwise, I would have to renounce my home, which I have no intention of doing, Um, which means I'm in an odd situation where... I'm a long-term resident in this country and have no real plan to try and practice anywhere else because this is where my home has become. Um, But this particular visa is a real challenge to try and keep up from the point of view of a freelancer and a theatre artist and an immigrant because I always have to have a pipeline of work within which I can actually apply to the government for an extension of stay. And not only is that not always possible... It's also not always practical. At this precise moment in my own life, I have 20-odd projects in various stages of development, but nothing on a season that's been announced. And so in August, I will have to try and explain to the government that I have many potential projects for which it's important that I stay in this country. But they may just turn around and say no, because I have no contract from SDC that says I have a job. Um, And that is one of the things I'm discovering for the first time on a legal level um, that I don't know how to reconcile with practicing as an artist. Because also, being Asian, I don't feel comfortable going up to people and asking for for something. I mean, the only solution I can think of in my head is to go up to a theatre and say, hey, can I do a show for you at some point? Because I really need to stay in the country um, for a variety of different reasons, which is just not really a conversation you're used to having with an artistic director. (laughs) (laughs) Especially, and again, you know, I brought up the Asian thing and I'm only half joking, but you know, we uh, as a culture, that's just not what we do. We don't put our foot forward in that way. Um, We sort of wait for what comes and we make the best of what is um, but at this moment it's it's a real it's becoming a real question of livelihood mm. um, and uh, beyond what one makes as an artist which is it's, it's a, a whole different panel um, uh, how do you even maintain a life in this country in that context is a huge question I'm dealing with right now mm. can I just say one thing you know you mentioned mental health and I don't feel like um, I feel like we're talking about how we recharge but I think that there's a moment where you actually somebody either know you how do you get the awareness to realize that you need to recharge? What is the moment that that happens? And what I have noticed, at least in like my peer group or whatever, is usually that's like by the time they're like crawling on the ground, burnt out. What you know what I mean? It's really, really, really tough. So I think that what everybody's pointing to also is sort of trying to sort of surround yourself and with with people and um, uh, uh, ideas outside of yourself or things outside of yourself, so that you can actually have have some distance to be able to notice I'd be like oh man I, maybe I need to sleep or maybe I needed this or maybe you know like I yeah um, and I think that that's just as important as like noticing that moment of what's necessary thank you all for doing this this has been amazing and I wish we could go on for like another couple hours seven hours with we, we have food and wine in here so <laughs> But sadly, we have to clear out by 8. So, 
But um, thank you all. Please give a round of applause for our wonderful... <laughs>